BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The back gate of the truck opened up. I saw the pallet and all these boxes and my heart just dropped. I, I felt like oh my God, we are in trouble because how are we going to sell so much soap? So I said to Alina, and, and it was the only time, never again, when I felt a little pessimistic. And I said to her, well, we're either going to sell loads of the soap or if we're bankrupt, we have the soap for the rest of our lives to wash ourselves in. guys, welcome to Breaking Beauty, the podcast all about the best-selling beauty products and the damn good stories behind them. We're your hosts, Carlene Higgins and Jill Dunn. Support for Breaking Beauty comes from Clearly.ca. Carlene, why do you have so many pairs of glasses in your shopping basket? What? One for every outfit of the week. You're going to buy seven new pairs of glasses? Extra. No, silly. Remember how Clearly.ca is offering two pairs of glasses for the price of one in honor of Canada Day this month? Yes, that makes them twice as nice. Actually, now they're seven times as nice. Because with every purchase made from now until the end of July, you'll also automatically get entered into a contest to win seven new pairs of frames. That's a $1,000 value, so I'm feeling lucky. Wait, don't their super cute styles start at just $50 and they offer free shipping and returns? Yeah. That settles it. They're 150 times as nice. Visit clearly.ca to get started. Hey guys, welcome back to Breaking Beauty. Thanks for tuning in. Hey, Carlene. Hi, Jill. How are you? Good. How are you? Excellent. So thank you guys. We just want to take a minute and thank everybody for the positive feedback that we've received on Instagram. Mm -hmm. And many people have left us reviews on Apple Podcasts. So shout out to you. Thank you so much for doing that. And if there's any other dream guests you want us to have on, please uh, don't hesitate to let us know. Definitely. Let's keep the conversation going. And I also want to shout out to our fellow beauty podcasters at Full Coverage and Fat Mascara Hidden Beauty and Emma Guns because we've recently been making friends with them and hopefully we're going to have some guest appearances coming up yeah. on the show so stay tuned for that. So today is a very special episode for us. We are sitting down with Lev Glasman. He is the co-founder of Fresh, the beauty brand he started 26 years ago now with his co-founder Alina Reutberg and Fresh is famous for its upscale beautiful packaged skincare you know it it's always front and center at Sephora you probably have some of their iconic products in your bathroom right now like the soy face cleanser the creme ancien you know the black tea anti-aging line and my personal favorite the sugar lip balm which I have in every single bag I mean they're all gangbusters really we're just fangirling over here (laughs) 
And what's interesting is the incredible storytelling around this brand. I mean, for skincare, that's a little bit more rare. You find that more in the fragrance world usually. Any iconic fragrance like Chanel Number no. 5, Terry Mugler's Angel, we've written those stories and there's always an unraveling about, you know, the inspiration and the rare ingredient and what was the make it or break it moment. And Lev has really brought that into the skincare world with Fresh and he's made it a richer experience. And maybe that is because he's a huge fragrance fan himself. 100%. And I think from a very early age, he was. Mm -hmm. And Fresh even refers to their copywriters that work at their brand as storytellers. Yeah, they know what they're doing. So I think that it's very much in the DNA of Mm -hmm. the brand to understand the power of a story and how it connects people to products they use in their daily lives. Mm -hmm. And we sat down with Lev for a 45-minute scheduled interview, 90 minutes later we're finally wrapping up and if it was up to us we would have kept going and going oh, yeah, we could have lev and his co-founder alina who he married and he refers to her as his best friend they are true visionaries they were putting fresh ingredients like rose petals for instance in their face masks long before anybody else even had that inkling of an idea. And one thing I'd like to note for our listeners is that Lev Glasman is actually one of the founders who inspired the Breaking Beauty podcast. Fun fact. I can remember being on a press trip in Paris and all of us beauty editors were gathered around in a circle as he told his story. He started right from the beginning, his childhood, Mm -hmm. growing up in communist Russia and his voice is so soothing. We were just really captivated as he took us away to this far away place and it showed us this picture of what beauty looked like under a totalitarian regime of course there wasn't there wasn't room to write about it on the page in the magazine you know so we're really excited that day of being able to share it with people beyond insiders and beauty editors is finally here My name is Lev Glasman, uh, and I'm from New York, and I'm uh, one of the co-founders of Fresh. I uh, grew up in Russia, in St. Petersburg. Uh, you know, I was born in 1961, so back in the 60s, Russia was still under an iron curtain, and not a lot of things were allowed or available at the time to really anybody. It was completely government-controlled, totalitarian uh, regime, and nothing would be penetrating through the walls of Russia. It it was my mother, my father, and myself. Uh, We all used to live in uh, communal apartments, and communal apartments, they really meant for three, four, or five, or six families. It's one of those big apartments that were taken away from the rich people after the 1917 revolution. And the craziest thing is that everybody would share one kitchen. If it's a family of six, there'll be six tables in the kitchen. It would be a big kitchen, but everybody using the same stove. It's one bathroom. A majority of these apartments didn't even have full bathrooms, so we used to go to public bathrooms once a week. And that's how majority of people used to live in a lot of these cities. My mother, she used to manage artist fund. So she, her offices used to be in the Winter Palace. So when I was growing up, I was always, after school, brought up running around along the halls of Winter Palace while my mother was working around, uh, which, which was very, very cool. 
I remember when I was six years old. I remember one day, it was Saturday, and my mother was sitting doing the usual things we usually used to do on Saturday. My mom used to take care of her hair, and she would put rollers in her hair. And I remember back in the 60s, women loved to sort of like tease their hair. So they'll put a lot of rollers in their hair, and then they'll create that big hairdo. Uh, and that was sort of like a majority of the day was spent on that. Uh, and I was sitting there, it was in the morning, I was sitting there playing also, I had amazing coloring books that my mother used to bring me. And uh, we were living on the ground level. And uh, I remember somebody was knocking on our window. You know, so my mother opened the window. Her friend was standing there. And she said, don't ask any questions. you got to get up and we got to go. Antoine is here, came from Paris, and he said he loves you. That's all I heard. My mom and I at the time were the only one at home because my father was away for a couple of weeks on business trip. And it was late October. St. Petersburg in October is not warm. It's cold and rainy most of the time. I was still sitting in my pajamas. My mom was sitting in her pajamas. The next thing I remember, my mom put coat on me and dressed herself. And uh, still with the pajamas and house sleepers, we were running out. The taxi was waiting outside. And we were driving. We were driving probably for a solid half an hour. We were driving to the outskirts of St. Petersburg. And all I could think about is, where are we going? We stopped in front of this brick structure. It was old warehouses. There was nobody there. And as we got out of the cab and we're walking around the building, I started connecting the pieces. And I remember the story of that black market. And I realized I'm in the middle of that. It was total mayhem. I mean, there were so many people running around. I saw a lot of different boxes cardboard boxes set up. Many kids with mothers, the same way as I am, in house slippers and pajamas and just coats thrown on them, standing there and in line. Everybody is buying something. The thing is that women were so afraid to even communicate among themselves, so they used to use code words. So Antoine was a particular guy who was a smuggler, but who would always bring different things from different parts of Europe. And when it says he came from Paris, he says he loves you, means he brought that one particular fragrance that all these women love. That really was a code word. It was pretty incredible that they actually had to communicate with each other in that way, because they were afraid that they'll be caught. Because if you come to a black market or you buy something that was smuggled into the country, it's totally illegal. And, and you're talking about just buying a fragrance or, or a cream or, again, or a stocking or a shirt or even a Vogue magazine that was smuggled into the country. Everything that was not available in Russia, you will be able to buy it through the black market, but it's obviously illegal. You'll go to jail. I remember as we were getting closer, my mother was getting more and more nervous. Finally, our turn came and my mom... Nobody even asks what you want. He basically puts a box in front of them because everybody knows what they're buying. It was a bottle of, it was a box with a fragrance in it. And she took 120 rubles out of her pocket. I remember she counted it and it was a lot of money because just to compare, we paid for our rent 22 rubles a month. So 120 rubles was, was a lot of money. Uh, one month's salary, if it's a pretty good salary, it's right about that amount a month. Uh, but the woman used to collect every penny for these type of occasions. I remember my mother paid the money. She couldn't get rid of the money fast enough because she wanted this box so much. And the moment that she paid, she took the box, walked away, and she immediately started opening this box. She opened the bottle of the fragrance and she put it on herself. And I smelled this incredible fragrance that I never smelled before. And everything all of a sudden went away. You know, my mother... Rollers just 
disappeared and the fact that I was standing there in, in pajamas with with a coat on my house slippers uh, none of it matter anymore uh, you know it's turned into magic I mean I, I was so mesmerized by by that fragrance because I never smelled anything the only thing I could smell in Russia there are two fragrances available for men and women and they're called uh, Red Moscow it was Red Moscow for men Red, Red Moscow for women and it smelled absolutely horrible. That story is insane. And here I thought I was like hard up just having Shoppers Drug Mart to get my electric youth at when I was in junior high. But I mean, like just being swept away to the black market to get this prized possession. It's just such an amazing story. Yeah, it's hard to imagine. But uh, sometimes that lack of something in a person's life creates this intense thirst and it can drive you. Yeah, and I think his his fascination started with his mother observing her rituals, but as we will hear coming up next, he also had a curiosity and drive that was very innate and all his own. I learned how to cook since I was pretty much I think 12 years old, and I love how you put one ingredient with another and something becomes out of it when you cook it. And in cosmetic I felt about it the same, except I wanted to know what that ingredient does for your skin versus the other. So if you get cold and your parent feeds you honey with raspberries and lemon, I said, oh my God, my, my throat was soothed and felt so good. Why don't I put it on my face? You know, if cucumber felt so fresh and cooling, why would I take the skin of the cucumber and rub it on, on my face as well during the summertime? So it freshes me up, freshens my skin up. Those things were very intuitive to me. I would always will go, particularly in the summertime, uh, we either go to Ukraine or Estonia, and there are some beautiful forests there. And my mom and I would wake up early in the morning and we'll go mushrooming to pick up mushrooms, which was one of my favorite activities. You got to start doing it very, very early in the morning. So she'll wake me up and we'll go to, to look for mushrooms. And it was such a great thing because finding a mushroom was such a great excitement, especially those beautiful white mushrooms. We'll fill those big baskets and carry them with us. But also at that time, when you're in the forest, you also, there's a wild strawberry that grows in there and there are, you know, blueberries that grow in there. So we'll start collecting them and also eating them as we're collecting them. And when I would come home, I would always apply, I'll, I'll do something, I'll, I'll, I'll sort of like I mash them up and I'll put them on my face because I love the experience, I love the smell so much. At the time when it was completely unstudied, you have sort of like this intuitive feeling about certain things, you know, that it probably must be good for you. I mean, if you can eat it and if it's so sweet and it's so good, why would it be good for your skin? So I would be sort of like concocting all of those things from almost making like a jam and applying it on my face. And then I would sometimes tell my mother when she would come home, well, I made you a mask. Why don't you try a new mask right now? I just wanted to see what it's going to do to her skin. My mother used to be my earliest guinea pig and she let me do it because she knew that I, I really loved it. And every other day I was surprised with a new concoction to be a tea. And in Russia, it was a lot about the black tea, obviously. There's a very much of a connection to our black tea line. My grandmother used to tell me, you know, you have to put tea under your eyes if your eyes are puffy. So she would put it in the, sort of like this gauze fabric and fill it with tea and put it in, in water and then put it under your eyes. And later on, what I started doing, was I started sort of like taking tea, brewing it, putting it in the freezer, creating those eye cubes that were actually made out of tea. This guy is my dream child. I wish that <laughs> I wish my kids would, you know, whip up a face mask and put it on me on a Saturday morning. 
But in all seriousness, it's interesting how a lot of these ingredients that he talks about, like black tea, are actually in the fresh line today. It was it was a kind of a crooked path before Lev eventually would arrive in America where he started fresh. His parents split up and he moved to Israel, spent most of his teenage years there where he even had a side hustle cleaning people's homes when he was just 15. And then he lived in Israel for a while, right? Yeah, he actually served in the army and thought that he wanted to become a dentist. And he did practice that until 1983 when he went to America for the first time. And up next, we're going to hear his first impressions. Uh, when I came to New York, I remember in Kennedy, and as we were approaching the city, I couldn't believe what I was seeing, seeing in front of my eyes. I mean, these the buildings, I mean, you feel power from so far away. It was so, so magnificent as we were entered the city, and the city was just waking up because we arrived in the morning, and all these cars and yellow cabs and people running on the streets, and they dressed a certain way. There was something about it that was so... I felt like I, I had to be part of that energy. It was so contagious. I wanted to get out of the car and, and, and just be on the streets. I like that there was this sense of anything is possible. Like, literally, it's like there's nothing. If you, want, if you want to do something and if you put your heart into it, there's nothing will stop you. And that was a sense that I felt right from the beginning. Lev was taken with the American way of life, so much so that he decided to stay. He ended up settling in Boston. That's where he would meet the company's co-founder and his future wife, Alina. She was finishing up her studies in fashion design at Parsons at the time. And just ahead, Lev describes their first encounter. Alina, I, I, I go with my friend. His name is Alex. And we go to this club and we're meeting Alina there. And it was sort of like shocking. I mean, she was very pretty, but she looked more like Susie and the Banshees, Alison Moyet, or, you know, it's hard to describe. It was a time where the punk movement was so big, new wave was kicking in. Alina had more earrings than I ever seen on one's ear. You know, half her head was shaved. Her shoes were so spiky that I was afraid that when we were dancing, I was afraid that I'll be injured. And she had like this humongous men's military coat that later on after we drank and dance, I put it on, I felt like I almost fell down to the ground, how heavy it was. And I was this guy from the country of milk and honey. You know, I just finished the army in Israel and uh, I had no connection to fashion in any way. You know, I was wearing my cowboy boots and jeans, flared jeans, and remember the shirt was, the buttons were open all the way up to my belly button and a chain and long hair. We couldn't be more opposite that you can imagine. I was, I was probably relating more to Saturday Night Fever than uh, to what Alina <laughs> represented at the time. And uh, we really didn't like each other. I mean, I was scared of her. And I, and I think she was just like thinking, who is this guy? I was physically scared of her because I, I thought that she's going to do something to me. Their next meeting would be seven years later. They were dressed almost the exact same way when they met up, which is so funny to me. That's like when you 
work in a an office and eventually everybody starts wearing the exact same outfit why does that happen i don't get that yeah. it's the weirdest phenomenon yeah wall of same is an actual <laughs> is a is a hashtag that how did i not know this oh i'm embarrassed twinning they started out as great friends and within the same year they actually it turned romantic and they got married by this time lev's ideas about starting his own beauty business were beginning to crystallize alina saw that vision I'm sure that was part of their clicking together. And with just $10,000, they opened a store in Boston South End. That was in 1991. But the name that they started out with, which was a little tidbit we had never been privy to before, the name was not fresh. And in fact, it wasn't very fresh at all. I was Nuts About Beauty, and I wanted the store to be called Nuts About Beauty. <laughs> and... Um... Alina really didn't like the name, but she gave it to me. She said, have it. And I didn't think about what it, I didn't even know what brand means. You know, what does it mean to build a brand? You know, you, I was very much intuitive about the way I was, I was doing things. So it's not about thinking, oh, my God, you know, I got to conceptualize everything. I got to, uh, you know, make sure that I create all the codes that could be so familiar to the customers and see building a brand. I, I didn't even know what it is. So the name, well, that's, I like the name, so I don't care if anybody else didn't like it. The name that they did settle on, of course, was Fresh, and it's kind of crazy that that name had not been trademarked already. I think that's the universe just, you know, inviting them to be like, start a company, start a brand. Yeah, talk about stars aligning. They also were able to secure the URL fresh.com. Hello, like, how was that <laughs> available? Yeah. And, you know, there wasn't a restaurant that snagged that mm -hmm. or a grocery company. It's truly amazing. It's all about timing, right? Yes. It was just before the dot-com boom, so yeah. they managed to slide it in. Never would happen today. They'd, no. they'd be spelling it like F R. SH with like <laughs> skipping the vowels, right? No, you don't need a vowel. Yeah. Yeah. Can I buy a vowel, Vanna? <laughs> no, you cannot. So the first product that they launched under their own brand was their iconic bar soap. And it's such a special product. Mm -hmm. But if you rewind and you think about 1993, what was in your shower in mm -hmm. junior high or high school? It was probably ivory soap. It was Dove, the Neutrogena bar, maybe. Right next to the Timote. Yeah. <laughs> oh, for me, it was Revlon Outrageous shampoo. But there was nobody taking that, you know, kind of everyday mm -hmm. item and elevating it certainly not in you know the mainstream beauty space right and and that was uh before the time of these fancy liquid hand soaps as well and Lev and Alina that was really their vision right it was all about quality and craftsmanship that's right and he was kind of already obsessed with the world of fragrance you know very keen to the sensorial experience so they went straight to the source they went to grass south of france where all fragrances are made i mean not all of them but you know it's the mecca yes. of the of really fine fragrances yes. and they came out with a line of four different bar soaps with scents like uh, verbena which is citrusy a floral wisteria vanilla and they loaded them up with shea butter and vegetable oils to make sure that they felt really soft and nice on your hands and coming up next lev describes a moment of panic that happened right before they were set to line their store shelves with these soaps. I remember we received a phone call from the shipping agent and he said that the trucker is coming. I said, okay, great. So an hour later, the trucker appears in front of the store, but 
it's, it was a big truck. I said, well, why is such a big truck coming in here? He said, well, I mean, I think we have 800 bars of soaps on it. I said, what do you mean 800 bars of soaps? <laughs> I mean, this is the only time that I felt a little pessimistic because I remember when the back gate of the truck opened up, I saw the pallet and all these boxes, and my heart just dropped. I, I felt like, oh, my God, we are in trouble because how are we going to sell so much soap? We have a store that maybe the best-selling soap would sell, would sell maybe a dozen a month, the best. And it is, was such a difficult time to convince people back in 1993 to spend 5 or $6 on a bar of soap. They just, in America, they didn't have that in them yet. They, they didn't feel that it was that important. It was Irish Spring, it was other soaps. You know, you can buy them for 99 cents. So convincing somebody to buy a soap for that price was, was crazy. So I said to Alina, and, and it was the only time, never again, when I felt a little pessimistic. And I said to her, well, we're either going to sell loads of the soap, or if we bankrupt, we have the soap for the rest of our lives to wash ourselves in. As we went downstairs to the basement, thinking about how we're going to take this unwrapped soap, not knowing regulatory-wise what we need to put on it or anything else, but we knew that we need to complete the whole picture for our soap. And so we were downstairs, and we had this craft paper. Aline and I were talking about it, and I said, why don't we wrap it, because it was a big oval soap. We still have it. It's our classic soap. Why don't we just rub it like a piece of butter with like, like some kind of a string around it? So we cut the paper, and I had some metal, uh, sort of like a stainless steel, very, very thin wire. And Alina also was receiving from some suppliers little gemstones, uh, you know, different colors. And I said, you know, I wrapped it with a the paper, then we put the wire around it, then we took the the gemstone, interwined it in, inside all of that. I said, hmm, that looks, that looks nice. That looks different from anything we have upstairs. Then Alina took like a silver pen and she just by hand wrote the names of the, uh, the fragrances and the soap and the soap itself. And then in the back, made in France, fresh, and that's it, totally illegal. It's not the way you do it, <laughs> we do it today. We didn't know that. I remember we brought the soap at night and we had this huge... We had a window to the street, and there was a big ledge. And we covered the whole ledge in all of those four soaps, like, like an ocean of these soaps. And I remember first thing in the morning, uh, the customer that comes into the door immediately goes into that uh, area and starts picking the soaps and starts smelling them. And all of a sudden, he comes in with two bars of soaps and puts them on, on the counter, and I, I'm so programmed because I know I need to sell the soap, so I started talking about, telling them about all the story about the soap, and I think that, I, I mean, I'm really in a rush. The soap is a perfect gift, and I want to try that one. I want to try the Verbena and Wisteria he bought to his wife, and I'm out of here, you know, just take the money, I, I'm ready to go. And that was the beginning of that. I remember when these first came to Canada and we got these soaps at the magazine. I, they were so different. And I always did this page, you know, the Beauty Picks page. Every magazine does them. And frankly, packaging counts for a lot yes. on that page. And I got, I got a hold of these and it was just like done and done. I remember actually when I was moving all my beauty products from apartment to apartment, when I moved many times over the years, I always brought, like I never unwrapped the soap. <laughs> 
<laughs> so, but it was also in my bathroom. So at one point, like the paper starts to peel off from like the humidity in my bathroom. <laughs> yeah. But I'm like, I can't throw it out. It's too pretty. Yeah, and, it's true. Uh, it, it was it's one for the archives, and it's still a huge bestseller today. Mm-hmm. Remember last Christmas when they did the zodiac versions of mm-hmm. the soap? They're Susan very giftable mm-hmm. with our with our um, favorite astrologer Susan Miller. Mm-hmm. So after that, so many iconic products launched from Fresh. I think. We'd really be remiss to not talk about creme S, yeah. Of course. But before we do that, does anyone remember fresh makeup? I definitely don't. Crickets, crickets. Yeah. Not a lot of people do. I do. Okay, first of all, try Googling fresh mascara on the internet. It's a joke. Like, you can't find it because Every mascara thinks they're fresh. Yeah, exactly. And I remember shooting it. It was in this black wand and it had stars like these really pretty white stars all over it i believe it was a tube mascara okay and i'm i still to this day swear by tube mascaras i know i know we forgot there was just too much to talk about yeah but if anybody remembers this makeup line can you please like chat at us um on instagram because i want to hear all the stories there was also a compact face powder that I loved. Like, yeah. honestly, the performance was amazing and the packaging was too. I don't really know what Time happened Time to start there. a petition. I know, it's true. But there's an amazing tale behind this product and how it came to be. I'm going to turn it over to Lev because nobody is going to tell the story better than him. In year 2000, we partnered with LVMH and we went to the laboratory. I remember one day we're sitting and communicating with my chemist. And he said, you know what, why don't we go to, there's a library. There's a library of all these incredible books and formulations because he knew, knew that I'm extremely curious and I used to drive him crazy with many different formulas and, and things. He said, why don't we go there and I want you to see something. So he picked up this old book. And uh, in the old book, uh, there, was, uh, there were many different recipes of particularly beauty recipes. There are some different concoctions from herbs and other things, from burns, from other things. Um, but there was one, as I was going through the book, there was one formula, there's something that like totally caught my attention, and I looked at it because it was very, very short, but I immediately, I saw the formulation, and I thought, my God, there, there's almost no water on the product you're talking about. There's only some wax, uh, there is a uh, rose water in it, and there is uh, olive oil. That's basically said we gotta make it. And then you start reading into it, um, and you're getting a little bit more background on that. So we found out that it was a formula that developed in second century A.D., uh, which is over two thousand years old, uh, by Claudius Galenus. Uh, he was sort of like the doctor to emperor the uh, Marcus Aurelius. I mean, he was sort of like taking care of their um, family. Uh, you know, he was creating different medicine for them. He was he was a he was a doctor. He was a scientist, and and at the time, and he basically created the first known to mankind cold cream. It wasn't a balm or it was a real cream. Uh, just the way how he emulsified it and the way he thought about mixing the water and the waxes together and, and the oil uh, created this incredible um, 
texture, which what we know today is cream. And uh, chemists told me there's no way you can do it because in manufacturing it will be almost impossible because the content of the oil and the content of the wax, you have to melt the wax, and you got to do it in the perfect temperature and the way how you mix it because it's, it's really designed to be mixed by hand if you really want to replicate that formula. And I said, well, we're going to take it to a monastery. So he said, how are you going to take it? Why monastery? I said, well, you know, they love working with their hands. I mean, they make honeys, they make jams, they make all kind of concoctions, you know. They make olive oils, I mean, beer. They do, they do all of the things. Why can't they make our product? Wait, Jill, when Lev was talking about the original recipe of the ancient face bomb, did he actually mention Marcus Aurelius? <laughs> I can't believe this. It's really crazy. To fill our listeners in, what, this is our fifth episode. Mm-hmm. Three of the five founders that we have chatted with have all mentioned Marcus Aurelius. How crazy is that? Yeah, it's really, I don't know what that's about. I, like when freaky things happen to, like that, I'm like, we have to follow this, right? <laughs> so we're actually taking a wiki break right now. So just follow us on this ride. But Marcus Aurelius was emperor of Rome from 161 to 180 AD. And he believed in stoicism. That was his philosophy. And it was about a set of principles that were based on nature, really. Mm -hmm. And he wrote about those ethics in what's most commonly referred to as meditations. And this is considered a huge contribution to the world of philosophy. Yeah, it's a guide on how to remain stoic or stable in the face of adversity. It could have been war um, during the ancient Roman time. Mm -hmm today it could be when somebody doesn't text you back you know it's about accepting the nature or the natural chain of events in life and uh, one of his famous quotes is very little is needed to make a happy life it is all within yourself in your way of thinking and that's really something you can relate back to Lev he's incredibly gifted in this area at making something tremendous of his life and a contribution to others because of his vision and and how it it guides him. You know, as a boy, he wanted to create food for the face. He believed in skin nutrition. And now he's created a line that does just that. All you have to do is look at this man. He is so, his skin is perfect. He exudes wellness. He's so fit, you guys. Yeah, and so <laughs> polished in how he's mm-hmm. put together. And also just the gentlest, kindest soul. So lovely. Mm-hmm. And last year, he launched a vitamin nectar vibrancy boosting face mask and it had 50% real crushed up citrus fruit in it. Mm-hmm. Um, you went to that event, I believe. Yeah. And I actually got to taste, it was like a marmalade and I got to to taste it in the lab. It's real food. And uh, his chemist thought that he was crazy um, when he said that he wanted to put it into the jar. And so there's the fruits, natural acids exfoliate. Mm-hmm. And that's the real payoff there. But he's expanding now this fall, actually in August, it'll be the moisture glow face cream. Yeah, from the same vitamin nectar line. Mm-hmm. But he's actually taking this idea of nutrition to a whole nother level. Mm-hmm. Last fall, he and his partners, both Alina and Damian Janowitz, opened a farm to table kitchen bakery cafe called the Bartlett House and it's in the Hudson Valley in New York State. Mind you, it won't be branded it's not branded at all as fresh, mm-hmm. but if you're tuned in, you'll see those fresh details. Oh, definitely. If you're a fan of the brand's rose toner that has the real petals floating around, you can go to the bakery and eat a rosewater muffin. 
Yeah, that's just one of the things. <laughs> oh, and yeah. I think, and he's also working on a boutique hotel. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is interesting. I believe it's it's a micro trend, if you will, happening with beauty visionaries turning their hand to creating special spaces. Bobby Brown, who just uh, left her eponymous brand, said that her next project is renovating this hotel with her husband. It's called the George Inn. It's just outside of New York City, a 32-room boutique hotel. Mm-hmm. And she said their aim is to create this eclectic, cool vibe that's comfortable with good lighting and not crowded. And she's really being the architect of this new brand. Wow. Yeah. There's definitely a theme around the idea of reinvention here, but there's also something really poignant about knowing who you really are and never losing sight of where you came from. It started with the idea of opening a hotel because we wanted to create a certain environment that is going to be basically, once you close the door, there's a magic happening behind those. And you have a full sort of experience of beauty. I'm not talking about beauty products. I'm talking about just visual beauty and comfort. And I thought that the hotel, together with Alina and Damien, thought that the hotel is going to be a perfect venue for us to sort of like express all of that, create all these environments, uh, highly curated spaces that expresses everything that we love and everything that we found throughout our travels. Obviously, when you there's going to be a restaurant in the hotel, though the restaurant ended up being not in the hotel because the hotel is still being built and some part of it is going to be open uh, in beginning of September this year, bakeries were always my other obsession. I'd walk into the bakery and I'd be so jealous standing there looking at how they work with the dough and there's something so sensual about it and the smells and I, I think it was so inspiring. There's the environment, that the flower that flying around and all, all, all of that. But, but also there is something about the chemistry of how to make bread, how you put the ingredients together and what they become, it's not very simple. You know, baking bread, it's, it's, it takes a lot of experience. And I know it's not something you can just put a couple ingredients together and go out there. It's, the approach is very similar to how I approach beauty. So I sort of started talking about bakeries for the last five years. It became sort of like I really want one day to have a bakery. And... Uh, Again, the opportunity came alone while we were building the hotel. There was this other building, which was 10 minutes away from where the hotel is going to be. It's called Bartlett House, and we kept the name. It's a three-story building. It was there since 1870, and uh, it was vacant for like 11 years, and uh, stands right on Route 66. And uh, when I looked in the building, I said, uh, together with my partners, with Alina and Damian, I said, we all thought that this would be a perfect opportunity for us to create what we're calling today Kitchen Bakery Cafe, which is sort of like, yes, it's Kitchen Bakery Cafe, but it's a, also a restaurant. And um, it's sort of completing a full circle. It, it's like now we're feeding ourselves, we're feeding people. So we're we, surrounded by farms, and we have a farmers that grow produce for us, and uh, and we create this great, very approachable, not very complicated, but very tasty dishes that look so far, touch wood, people adore, they love it. It's a very popular place. And, and, um, and there is this whole other experience, but I think it's, to me, it's completes, now it's completes the full story, because now the whole world that 
we're creating around ourselves. Right now, it's out there for everybody to share. Thanks for tuning in to Breaking Beauty. Be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcast fix. And if you're up for it, show your love by writing a review in iTunes. And get behind the scenes scoop, as well as our social media handles at breakingbeauty.ca.